You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 14. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Uh, James chapter 3 is a passage, uh, has a passage that's great fun to work on, but it would be kind of a Sunday school or a sermonic kind of approach. So let's, just, let's talk in a, in a different mode to try to help you uh, hone your analytical skills from James chapter 3. Uh, James chapter 3 and rhetorical analysis is what I'd like to call this segment. Uh, the thesis is that understanding the conventions of rhetoric in the ancient world helps us understand the message of James passage by passage and as a whole. Now, you remember that commentators used to, and analysts and critics, used to fault James for being uh, just a bunch of ideas thrown together chaotically, So it seems he must, one person said, have been a good, pious man who took a few sayings from his disciples, the disciples of the apostles, and tossed them off on paper. Another person said his exhortation is mere pearl springing, putting disjunctive thoughts together just by means of using catchwords. Another person said the book of James is agglutinative, which means just kind of glued a bunch of things together. Agglutinative. Two G's in that, if you like to spell rare words. So, so James. Uh, but what I want to say to you is that James has a clear and a tight structure. And, it, and the book encourages uh, deep analysis, careful analysis, if we just know how to look at, that, look at it. James 3, 1 to 4, 6 has all kinds of indications of careful work. For example, in 3.1, it begins with a warning about speech. It is that. But it's also continuing to develop the nature of true religion. Because true religion controls the tongue, but now he's going to tell us that no one can control the tongue. What is he going to do with that? And... True religion is unpolluted by the world. But in chapter 4, verses 1 and following, he's going to tell us, or tell his congregation, that we are polluted by the world and we're friends of the world. And what are we supposed to do with that? When he says these are the signs of true religion, and he says, but we don't fulfill them. He's setting up a paradox in us, and he's going to give us, put us in a position of tension, and then he's going to resolve or relieve that tension toward the end of the section. It's very important also to realize that, uh, we might put it this way, that James chapter 3 and 4 doesn't just warn against sin, it diagnoses us. It doesn't just say, don't do this and that, although it does. It also makes us face the question, why do you do those things? The book of James follows patterns from the ancient world that were commended by rhetoricians. People like Cicero, 
and people like Quintilian, who doesn't get as much press as Cicero does, who had uh, developed to a very high level of science uh, the skill of persuading, of arguing a case, and so forth, so as to uh, sell things, win in politics, uh, get people to do what's right. Uh, the pattern that was used in Greco-Roman rhetoric was fivefold. First of all, when you want to try to get people to do something, see your right course of action, you set out your proposition, what needs to be proved, your thesis. And you give one main reason for that thesis. Then you confirm that thesis by additional arguments. And fourth, you embellish. Embellishment includes all sorts of things. Illustrations and uh, similes and analogies. Uh, references to things from the distant past or common facts everybody knows. Um, an appeal to emotion. Entertaining objections and trying to answer them. And then finally, what was called sometimes the resume or the conclusion where everything's brought together. That was the pattern in the ancient world of rhetoric. Some people might say, well, wait a minute, I thought James was writing for Jews from Palestine. Why would he use rhetoric? More than half the people who lived in Palestine during the life of Jesus, by most estimates, more than half were Greek or Roman. Less than half were Jews. So if you lived in Palestine... It was impossible, or almost impossible, unless you lived in a very small, isolated village, to completely avoid the influences of your culture. The analogy I would use with you would be this. Everybody in this room knows a fair amount about marketing, right? Even if you never took one course and never planned to take a course, you know the way things are marketed. You know that the most interesting aspect of most Super Bowls is the commercials. And you know why. Because you've got to keep people watching the TV for your commercials, so they have to be very, very interesting. Right? And you know, if you look around, you, you understand the way in which people uh, manipulate you, try to get you to buy things. You don't have to be told. You have to go to class. In a similar way, people knew the conventions of rhetoric in the ancient world. They didn't have to be told. It was everywhere. You didn't have to be educated. Rhetoric was unavoidable the way marketing strategies are unavoidable if you live today. So, even though James, is a, as a Jew, writing for primarily Christian Jews, he could still very plausibly use the categories of rhetoric because they were everywhere. Everyone who was educated formally studied rhetoric, and everybody who bumped into people who were educated formally bumped into people who knew rhetoric. It was, it was the one subject you studied every last year that you were in school, rhetoric. So the, the, we should expect, we shouldn't be surprised that James uses it. Let me just show you how it works. In James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, from our last class, I'm just going to go through these very, very rapidly. In James chapter 2, the thesis or the proposition is, Show no partiality or show no favoritism, my brothers. The reason is, if you 
the reason is it's inconsistent with faith in Christ. But he puts it this way. Because if you treat rich men as if they're superior, you are usurping God's role as judge. That's the main reason. The confirmation, verses 5 to 7, that's the third point, is that God has chosen the poor, but the rich mistreat you. Those are further reasons to not favor the rich. He embellishes on this argument by citing previous authorities, the Old Testament law, by repeating the proposition found in chapter 2, and by amplifying the idea that if you even break this one seemingly trivial law, you've actually opposed God himself. He doesn't really bring it. He doesn't slavishly follow the conventions. doesn't bring it to a resume. He simply ends by saying mercy triumphs over judgment. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 are very similar. The proposition, in the way they follow the reasoning of rhetoric, the proposition is faith without works does not profit. Faith without works is dead. He advances this thesis through some, some rhetorical techniques. Repetition, he says several times that faith without works is dead or useless or vain. He also uses rhetorical questions and keeps on using a key word, what is the advantage, a key phrase, what is the advantage. He gives a reason. The reason is you can see plainly that faith without works is useless because it's like someone who tells his friend, I hope things work out for you. And that's useless if you don't actually do anything. The confirmation comes when he anticipates the objection. You have faith, I have deeds. Or you have deeds, I have faith. Isn't that the way it goes? He clears that objection. He embellishes through examples from the life of Abraham and Rahab. And he brings it all to a conclusion in chapter 2, verse 26. And when he says again, so you see, faith without works is dead. Chapter 3 does the same thing. It gives a thesis, not many of you should be teachers. That's the proposition. The reason is because teachers will be judged more strictly. Do you see that? Not many of you should be teachers because will be judged more strictly. The confirmation is don't think that you will fail to fall in your tongue. You will. If you talk as much as some teachers do, it is certain that eventually you will say something that is wrong or false or demeaning or belittling or proud or something. He goes on to say then, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Well, is anybody so perfect? No, we all stumble. The embellishment comes next, where he adds a series of, of things to enrich the argument. First of all, he uses a simile, he says, or a couple of similes. He says, the tongue is a little thing that accomplishes a great deal. It's like a bit in the mouth of, mouth of a horse. How much does a bit weigh? Does anybody know? Just a bit. <laughs> Maybe three or four ounces. How much does a horse weigh? Maybe 1,400, 1,500 pounds. But a bit controls a horse. How much does a rudder weigh? Well, not much compared to the whole ship, I'll guarantee you. But the rudder determines the direction of the ship. And so a tongue, small thing, has great impact. He's using an embellishment. He's giving an analogy. He also arouses emotion. He says a tongue is a fire. It's a world of evil. It sets the whole 
it stains the whole body and sets the whole world on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. He corroborates. He says, you know, the tongue is such a strange instrument. With the tongue, we bless God, and then we curse our fellow man who's made in God's image. What an absurd thing to do. But the truth is that many of us do use our tongues to, if not curse, at least to demean our fellow man. And yet we praise God. So be careful in the use of your tongue. He doesn't come to a classic conclusion on this matter, but in fact what he does is lead into the next section, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? That would be then, you know, who your teacher should be wise and understanding. He says, really, if you're wise and understanding, you need to show it by your good life, including the way you use your tongue. Our tongue. Can I give you just one quotation about this? It's from um, a man who wrote a commentary on James. And I will tell you that he himself is a truly great teacher, spellbinding, masterful teacher. This is what he said. Teachers, particularly, are vulnerable to failures in speech, not only because their profession demands that they speak more than others, and they must do so in public, and before, very frequently, a captive audience, such as you, because such a setting provides temptations to virtually every form of evil speech, arrogance and domination over students, anger and pettiness at every form of contradiction and inattention, slander and meanness toward absent opponents, flattery of students for the sake of vainglory. So true. So true. And if any teacher could refrain from all of those sins of the tongue, he would be a perfect man. But of course we're not. Nonetheless, lacking perfection, on to chapter 3, verses 13 through 5, 6, even though we lack perfection, it is still incumbent upon us to live a good life, to live a wise life, to live an excellent life. Now, here again... We have to believe, we have to believe that James is skilled. We have to assume that James is more than just a series of bits of advice about how to live as a Christian. I believe that there is a strong logic and flow to James, that he's very craftsmanlike in his work. And it is here in this passage, as much as anywhere, that it's crucial that we'd be willing to, to believe this and follow it through. Uh, one more time, there are a couple of themes from the book that are introduced in the first chapter that we trace throughout the book. One is that the, trial, the trials test the genuineness of our faith. That trials either cause sin or they cause us to come to maturity. And the Word of God is, is God's gift to us, implanted in us. I'm in chapter 1, around verse 20 now. In the midst of the trial, it's implanted in us. It recreates us and saves us. Otherwise, our trials will lead us, by virtue of our desires, into sin and ultimately toward death. 
our trials will determine which way we go. But if we listen to the word that God has given us, chapter 1, verse 20 and following, and receive that word and gaze into it intently, and it does give us this new birth, and we see ourselves as we are, then we will be proven to have true religion, those three signs, one more time. Those three signs have been working our way through in chapter 2 and 3. What's the first sign again? You'll get at least three points right in the test. What is the first sign? Is controlling your tongue. We just finished that, chapter 3. Second sign is caring for the poor and the, and the needy, the widow and the orphan. That was chapter 2, right? Verses 1 to 26 is all about showing deeds to the poor, like the person who comes in the church, or like your, your brother who doesn't have clothes and so on. Okay, now there's one left, right? Being unstained by the world. And now we're going to come to that one. Now he's going to develop the third great test of the faith. Now, how does he do it? He does it, first of all, by leading us into a discussion of true wisdom. True wisdom is described in chapter 3. Now, it's going to be set up in contrast to false wisdom or worldly wisdom. And by looking at true wisdom and false wisdom, he's going to get at the question of being stained or being unstained by the world. So here goes. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? He asks a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. We're tying into chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, because teachers should be wise. We're also setting up the next thing, that is, a life that's free from pollution by the world. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Talk about the two wisdoms, especially the antithesis between envy just crucial to the wisdom of the world, mentioned a couple times, and the wisdom that produces humility and peace. And then he's going to look in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, at the way in which desires rage and the way in which we handle those desires. Okay, here we go. Chapter 3, verses 13. I read you one verse. Let me read a couple more. Um, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, now we're talking about the world here, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, you have disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The first mark of worldly wisdom, then, is envy, a longing for what another has. Envy as, as, uh, as a sort of a, a cancer, the gnawing sorrow that you can't be happy because somebody else has what you have. This comes, this is essential to worldliness, because it comes from the idea, the worldly idea, that our identity and our worth come from our possessions. Uh, the idea would be, I've got to, hang on just one second, I want to make sure I know where I'm in my notes. Um, I've got to prove that my life is, is, uh, is valid 
and good and real by having the right things. Envy is, in fact, we could say, uh, one of the clearest marks of an unbelieving lifestyle, an unbelieving mentality. The mentality of envy goes like this. This is not, by the way, right now in your notes, okay? I'm adding something to your notes. The mentality of envy goes like this. If my life is to be true and fulfilled and happy, I have to have the right things. I have to find them for myself. I have to look out for my interests. If I don't look out for my interests, no one else will. I have to make sure that I get what I deserve. And if I don't get what I deserve, then my life is not valid. I look around and I see other people getting more than I have. I see other people who are no more talented, no more hardworking than I am. It's logical for the worldly person, the person who's deeply stained by the world, to find that insufferable. And to think, I've got to get it for myself. Because they don't know that their identity and their worth and their value comes from God. They don't know that they're significant, whether they've accumulated rank and possessions or not. And they've got to strive for that and grasp for that. And it's, and it's going to eat them up because they don't believe that God will give them what they deserve. They've got to get it for themselves. It is essential, it is logical to the worldly mind that it be filled with envy. On the other hand, it is logical for the Christian, for the, shall we say, the, the way of truth, the righteous, to show their wisdom by an excellent life. You have verse 13. If anyone is wise in understanding, let him show it by his good life. I'm going to tell you that the that the Greek there doesn't just mean a good life in the sense of morally good, but the word that's used there for good is beautiful. Let him show up by his beautiful life. And the word for life could actually be translated more aptly lifestyle. That is to say, wisdom shows itself all throughout your life. Your entire lifestyle demonstrates that you have wisdom from God. And one of the crucial things... Of, of that wisdom is that it's, it is the opposite of envy and selfish ambition, but instead it shows humility. Now that word for humility in verse 13 is not the, the ordinary word uh, for humility, meaning uh, you know sort of uh, not boasting and so on, but it's actually ordinarily translated gentle or gentleness. One of the great, or one of the central marks of the believer is that he is gentle. This is, he doesn't have to, the believer doesn't have to, is not like the unbeliever who has to assert himself to gain whatever he can, but the believer is content and peaceful and therefore gentle. Not ambitious, gentle, meaning not running around asserting oneself and demanding oneself or demanding one's own rights. Now, I'd put it to you this way. This gentleness, we don't we be careful we understand gentleness and humility, not as, as meekness or weakness or mildness or being a pushover, because I want to tell you it takes real strength to be gentle. It takes real strength not to grasp for oneself. 
It takes real strength to be able to wait for God to vindicate you. It was just uh, about a year ago that Major League Baseball uh, celebrated uh, the integration of baseball. Remember the story of Jackie Robinson, who came into the majors in 1997, 1947. A year ago it was 1997. 1947 he came in, and he, I think, along with one of his teammates, epitomized this gentleness of a beautiful lifestyle of not asserting oneself. Let me tell you the story, just a couple aspects of the story. Some of you may know that baseball might have been Robinson's third best sport. Most people think he was better at both track and football than he was at baseball. Now, track was, was more, like, more or less like today, not very consequential, not attended to a whole lot. You couldn't make a good living. Um, football, he was probably better, but it was already integrated. And he was, he was interested in the integration of sports. And so baseball was not integrated, and so... Uh, some people were looking for the right person to help integrate baseball, and they chose Robinson. Now, you may also know that Robinson was a very fiery man, a man of strong opinion, strongly expressed, and really was not, he was kind of unpredictable, not in anybody's corner, as it were. He said what he thought, and he, and he expressed it himself forcefully. And people knew that. He, they knew that he had a lot of strength of character and a lot of convictions. But the deal was, when you come into Major League Baseball, you can't talk for two years. That was the agreement they made. No matter what anybody says, no matter what epithets and abuse they hurl at you, you've got to take it in silence. Now, for a man with a lot of opinions, an articulate man, which he was as well, that is not an easy thing to do, especially when uh, it was the harshest and cruelest and vilest of language that he had to hear time after time. It took strength to be gentle, to not answer fire with fire. He also happened to have a room, uh, a teammate. He played second base. His teammate was Pee Wee Reese. Some of you might possibly remember the name Pee Wee Reese, who was a many-time all-star shortstop also for the Dodgers. And Reese, I forget what state, but he was from, from one of the southern, you know, deep south states like southern Alabama. And uh, he, you know, he took some grief, too, for being on the same team as Robinson. And uh, sometimes was accused in not very nice language of, of uh, you know, being a little too close with Robinson. And one day, uh, the epithets reached, you know, a fever pitch of abuse. And as always, Robinson stayed quiet. This particular day, Reese went over. You know how they throw grounders to each other during the break between innings? He went over, and instead of throwing grounders, Cedric, you want to do it with me? Just stand up for a second. Instead of throwing grounders with each other, Pee Wee Reese just went over and kind of, you know, like this. They just kind of, Pee Wee Reese just kind of looked at the other side and just kind of put his arm around Jackie, and they just stood there and kind of hugged like men for a while. And the men on the other team were so astonished by this that they were shamed to silence. And the, the accounts that I've read of it indicate that, you know, that on that day when the abuse of Robinson reached the fever, and he said nothing. And Reese said gently, you know, you can scream at me too because we're brothers. We're teammates and we're brothers. And, and you know, they just couldn't stomach it. I want to tell you, that was gentleness and that was strength. That was not asserting oneself. The essence of worldliness is shown in things like envy, 
and ambition. I'm still in verses 13 and 14. Envy and ambition and self-assertion because the unbeliever says, I need to assert for myself. I need to get for myself. If I don't get it for myself, it will not come because there is no God. If I don't get it for myself, it's not coming my way. But the Christian is in the core of his being gentle, that is to say, not self-asserting because we know that God will assert for us, that God will give us what we need. That's the core of godly wisdom. Now, not only is that so, but as he moves on in chapter 4, verses 1 and following, he's next going to talk about another mark of, of, uh, of godlessness and another mark of true religion. In this section, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? We're back to the loudness of the worldliness and so forth. He asks the question, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Now, he's speaking here to Christians, or at least ostensible Christians. He says you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, that's odd. Did you hear that? He's talking to Christians, and he says you're killing, you're quarreling, you're coveting, and you don't have because you don't even ask God. Now, that's strange. When I read something strange like that, I have to ask, why is that there? Why would James say to Christians, you don't even ask God? Well, the answer has to be that you don't ask God because you're ashamed to ask God. Because if you went ahead and said it out loud before God in prayer, you could no longer deny that it was in you. Uh, A year or so, a year and a half ago, it became undeniable that our family car was dying. It had terminal cancer. And there was no alternative but to get another car. In our second car, what my father-in-law calls a puddle jumper, which is basically just a car that runs around and gets 40 miles per gallon and looks terrible, but nobody cares because it runs good, as the ads say. But we we had to get another car, one that would hold everybody. and, And as I looked around, for a car. And when I, fu- I found it was difficult to pray for a car because what I really wanted was a Lexus, brand new, for $7,000. Or maybe a Mercedes, brand new, loaded, $9,000. That's what I really wanted. But to say that to God, to say, Lord, please give me, you know, that would be a hard thing to do. Or, you know, when you go looking for another, you know, big-ticket item, like maybe an education. Lord, what I really want is an Ivy League education for community college prices. That's what I really want. Or a house. You know, what I really want is a 12-room house at four-room house prices. And we have a hard time praying about some of these things, if you know what I'm talking about. There are some things that we want or we need, and we find it very difficult to pray about them. We almost rather ask somebody else to pray about them for us because we know that we can't get it right. When we go to ask God, we know that we're going to ask selfishly. So that's what I think that's what James is driving at in chapter 4, verse 2. You, you, you uh, do not have because you don't even ask. And he says, well, in fact, the truth is some of you do ask, but you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your own pleasures. Okay, that's 
maybe we might say easy enough to understand. But then he, he raises the stakes and he says, you adulterous people. What he now likens the, the church to is people who are married to God, but now they're committing adultery. You adulterous people are going, now we're, we're actually linking this back to the prophets who, who complain about Israel or who indict Israel for, for going after other gods when they're married to Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? You can't love the world and love God simultaneously. You can't live for possessions, influence, material wealth, and new experiences, and your ease and your pleasure and also live for God. You can't do both. Now, I want to be very careful. I'm not saying that it's evil to have power or possessions. I'm saying it's evil to live for them. If power and possessions come to you, if you inherit it, or if you just do a good job year after year, and the result is that they say, you know, do a good job, you'll get these rewards these financial rewards, and they simply they chase you, as it were, there's nothing evil in it if it comes your way. I have a friend, I'm thinking of one friend as I say this, who became wealthy, and, and a, not fabulously wealthy, but pretty wealthy, and the chief operating officer of a small but not tiny company. And he, he found it amazing. He was 60 years old when he had this conversation. He found it amazing at how wealthy he'd become. He said, you know... They just hired me, and I did my job. And this is what happened. And he was adept at giving it away. And, and no one knew. You know, when he would give money away, he would just insist. He would, sometimes he would give it just to me, not even the church treasurer. Just me. And other people like this say, listen, I want no one, only the person who holds the deposit slip. Only the person who actually takes the check. That's the only person who should know. Because they understand that they have it but they don't live for it. One of the best ways of proving you don't live for it is to give it away. So there's nothing wrong with having possessions and power and ease. But there's everything wrong with living for them. Saying that's the purpose of my life. And if, in fact, if you say I've got to have them, that, that's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God because, of course, the world admires these things, material possessions and ease and comfort and, uh, you know, the right experiences and status and influence and all the rest. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, he says. And now, of course, um, we see unmistakably that we have moved to that third point. The third sign of true religion. True religion is unstained by the world. But some Christians are stained by envy and ambition and by desires for things that are so questionable that we're un unwilling even to mention them before God. Now, if there's anybody here who's feeling a little bit guilty right now and saying, man, you know, I don't help people who are needy and I don't control my tongue and... I'm stained by the world, then James would probably right now be saying, good, that's what I wanted. Because the thing about James is that it's possible 
to read James with a certain sort of Christian heroism. These are the things, these are the signs of true religion. I'll go out and do them. And then I'll be right with God and I'll prove my faith is real. And that would be a radical misconstrual of James. Real faith works, but he is taking us, he is breaking us down to realize we can't achieve these three. If we were just to say, you know, yeah, I've got true religion, then he's, he's forcing us to recognize that this kind of thing of desires that we hide even from God is in probably every last one of us. And a tongue that's guilty of various sins is in every last one of us. And see, now, really, in a way, he's come to the climax, we might say the evangelistic climax of the book in the next verse we are there. Uh, the difficulty with the next verse is that it is excruciatingly difficult to translate. And I will tell you candidly that I think that the NIV has not gotten it right. Chapter 4. And nonetheless, maybe I have to uh, start with the NIV. I'll, I'll read it to you simply from the NIV. Well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I won't. What I think I'll do is, is simply tell you what the two possible, two possible translations of it are. After getting through all this thing about friendship with the world and, and being an enemy of God, he then asks him this question. Do you think that the scripture speaks in vain when it says something? Now, maybe don't look at your NIV now, okay? I don't, I, I, it would take me a long time to explain why. It has, it has to do with all kinds of rules of Greek grammar, but... I'll tell you just this much. If you have a Bible translation with notes at the bottom on translations, you will see at the bottom that there are about three different ways of translating this. Do you see that? How many of you have that? How many of you have a Bible with little notes? Okay. If you have it, you will see there's various options. So I'm going to tell you what I think the option is. Option number one, do you think Scripture speaks in vain when it says that the Spirit which God caused to dwell in us envies intensely. That's a very literal translation of it. I'm going to read it to you again so you can say it. Write it down if you want. Do you think the Scripture speaks in vain when it says that the Spirit, that is the human Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit, which God caused to dwell in us, envies intensely? What James would be saying then is this. God has put a Spirit in us, an eternal Spirit. We have a sense of God, a sense of eternity, a purpose in life. He caused that spirit to dwell in us. And the scripture speaks, and it does not speak in vain. Do you think the Bible says this in vain? It does not. The Bible does not speak in vain when it says that right now, apart from God's grace, the spirit which God caused to dwell in us is marked by intense envy. In fact, that is the testimony of the whole of scripture that apart from the grace of God, that this business of, of striving after the world, being a friend of the world, and, and envy, and those sorts of things, is actually the truth about human nature. It starts really with Cain and Abel, doesn't it? The, so soon after the fall, we have one brother envying the status of another before God. And Jacob and Esau striving over the blessing. And Joseph and his brothers envying each other as to who had the favor in God's sight. We could even say, without much exaggeration, that the history of the human race is a history of envying and striving after what other people have. So many wars are fought over wanting what somebody else has. 
Now that's, that, that, I think, actually is, is the main way or, or probably the best way to take this passage. But there's one other way to say it, another way to read it. And it goes like this. Do you think that the Bible speaks in vain when, it's, uh, when it says this? Do you think that the Spirit which God caused to dwell in us craves for the sake of envy? Put it to you a different way. If you look at the desires that we have in our hearts, which we undoubtedly have. We have cravings. We have, we have passions. Why do you think God put them there? Did God give you your desires so you could spend them on your lusts and your envies? Is that why God gave you the energy that you have? Is that why He gave you the passions, the concerns in life, the goals, the aspirations you have? Is that what they're there for? To spend them on envy? Is that what you think? Don't think that. No. The energies that God has given you should not be spent on envying after what other people have and, and being ambitious to gain what they have. Instead, we should understand that God has given us these things for a very different reason. And He has given them for uh, to us and for us graciously. He gives us more grace. His purpose behind these desires is to drive us to Himself. And in fact, we could say that when we see the envy and ambition, it, that also drives us to Himself. He gives us grace when we see that the, that the passions we have in us are so easily misdirected. That is to say, I believe that, that this is, we might say, the gospel of James. The gospel of of introspection and repentance. Take a good hard look at yourselves. Look at the temptation of worldliness. Look at the envy, the desires that are in you. Look at, uh, look at your tongue. Look how easy it is for you to misdirect yourself. Even, even the best traits in yourself. The energy of your life. When you see that, turn to God and realize that He would give you, verse 6 says, more grace. That in fact, God's way is to oppose the proud, those who grasp for themselves, but give grace to the humble, to those who see that they can't pass those three tests of true religion. Submit to God, he says. Humbly submit to God. I'm now in verse 7. And then resist the devil and he'll flee from you when you fail those evil in those three tests and show the wickedness in you. Once you come to him humbly confessing that, then you'll be able to resist the devil. And he'll flee. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Wail over these sins that he's been indicting you of in the last while. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's the word of grace. That's the gospel of James. Dare the test. Strive for them. Then recognize that you fail. Take your failure to God. Grieve over it. Mourn over it. Wail over it. He'll lift you up. That, of course, is a quotation from the Psalms. And what he's trying to say again is this, this thesis of his is indeed a testimony that the entire scriptures 
would give to us. There's more to be said about this theme, but let me just stop. I'm going to guess that this is not quite the way you've usually had the book of James explained to you. And one or two of you may have a question. I'm, I'm trying to, if I can just step out and show you the bones of what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do is get us out of reading James. In a sense, my whole purpose in these two weeks on James is to get out of reading James as a series of aphorisms. These are the things a good Christian does. Those, that way of reading James is not absolutely wrong to read it as just a lot of guidance for Christians. But it's, it's not deep enough. To go deep enough is to realize that James is not just the Proverbs of the New Testament, a bunch of nice little things we ought to do, but it is deeply structured by rhetoric. It is structured by themes that have come up in chapter 1 or are being constantly reworked throughout, and that they are reaching their apex in two places, probably in chapter 2, the discussion of true faith, verses 14 to 26, which we looked at earlier, and now here, and they're kind of bookends, the positive and the negative. True faith shows itself this way. But wait, we aren't capable of manifesting true faith. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll lift you up. So the word of salvation is not mentioned in James the way it's mentioned in Paul by talking about the propitiatory sacrifice and the blood of Christ on the cross. It is instead working, not looking to the external work of Christ, but looking to the internal work of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin and drawing us to humility before the God of grace. I'm mindful of our time and the need to, um, to convey the information uh, that you'll require. So let's, let, me, let me continue on and look at how this theme is developed in the remainder of chapter 4 and 5. And here I will uh, move more rapidly and sketch for you instead of working line by line. There are, I believe, certain challenges to the way of wisdom that are outlined in chapter 4, verses 11, through chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, these challenges are to, um, to live in ways that are contrary to the way of humility. Now, he sets these up, this little segment, 411 to 56, has some stylistic uh, unity. It has a series of kind of rough and deflating questions. Who are you? What is your life? This is a rough summons. Come now, you rich, and so on. Certain, sort of a rough rebuking character to chapter 411 through 56. And what he rebukes is all, in one way or another, a sin of arrogance or pride sins against the humility that he just urged on his readers. So, chapter 4, verse 11, is a warning against slander. Uh, brothers don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. So, slander, I'll read maybe the rest of this later, but slander involves judging another and a private decision. You have the right to judge their motives and that you have a superior position to them, and you can judge them and condemn them and tell other people how bad they are. Uh, so th those would be, that would be a sign of, of the opposite of humility, when you judge and slander your brother, verses 11 and 12. And then verses 13 to 16 are very boastful and presumptuous. Verses 13 to 16 or 17 
talk about the ambition of wealth or the, uh, the, the quest for wealth and the intent of getting wealthy, which reveals an envious spirit. Verse 13 and following. Some, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city, that city, spend a year there, care on business and make money. We're going to go make money. I want to get rich. And in fact, uh, in, the, in, in the ancient world, I think I mentioned this last week, in Palestine, the way to get rich was by trading. So the idea is, I want to get rich. I'm living for money. The way I'm going to get rich is by trading. And he thinks, this hypothetical person thinks, that they can control their destiny. This is foolish because we can't really control the future. Our life is, is really just a mist, he says. Just a mist on a lake that's gone by 10 in the morning, as mists on the lake always are. Your life is fleeting and ephemeral. Third is the sin of oppression. This is very clearly a sin of the rich, who, chapter 5, verse 1 and 6, should weep and wail because their wealth is rotting. What have they done wrong? Verse 4, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. You see, the corruption of the rich who are envious of even the daily wages of a common laborer. They're so envious and grasping that even though they're rich, that when it comes time to give the poor just a, a minimum wage, they won't even give them that. They say, come work for me. And they say, well, I'm not going to give you any money after all. So these are three sins of pride and arrogance and envy. And, and in each one, there is a, a call to realize why we should be humble. Notice in the first one, he asked the question with regard to the slanderer, who are you to judge? Who gave you that post? What gives you that rank? Do you really think you're so noble? And then the second one, he asks, who are you? Chapter 4, who are you? What is your life? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Do you really have so much control over history? You're, you're just a mist. Your life is just a mist on a lake, a puff of smoke, a puff of a cloud. And then to the rich, he says, do you really think you can guarantee that you're going to stay rich by defrauding your laborers? In fact, not at all. Because the more you defraud them, the more they cry out. And when they cry out to God, God will surely vindicate. And in fact, the gold and silver that you have hoarded up is going to corrode. He goes on and says, worse than that, it won't just corrode. It's going to be like burning metal, eating your flesh like fire. And you, who have gathered so much for yourself, will turn out to be like, like beasts, like dumb cattle who have fattened themselves for the day of slaughter. You thought you were going to guarantee yourself wealth forever, but in fact, you're guaranteeing your condemnation. And each one, while there's a, a pointing out of the frailty of a human who can't really call himself a judge or control his future or secure his wealth, there's a reference to God. God is the one who judges, chapter 4, verse 12, not you, God. And God is the one who will determine the effect of your plans and the length of your days that's why he says, instead of planning what you're going to do tomorrow, verse 415, if you plan, you should say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this and that. And God, the Lord of hosts, is the one who will 
determine who gets the riches and who doesn't. He hears the cries of the harvesters, and he'll judge those who have oppressed them. So in each turn, there is a call to godly humility. And then in the last section, he positively points out what we should do. Instead of, there's a sort of a structure goes, there's a sort of a, a one, two, three, three, two, one structure. I'm going to turn to the next page in your notes now. I think I'm moving on to chapter 5, verse 7 to 20. Chapter 4, verses 11 to 12 said, Don't use the word to slander your brother. The last few verses of chapter 5 are going to tell us how we should use the word. Not to judge our brother, but chapter 5, verse 19 to 20, we should use the word to win a brother who wanders away from the truth, to win him back, to turn a sinner, sinner from the error of his ways. When you see a brother sinning, don't slander him. Win him back. 4.11 has a sort of a, a, a partner in 5.19-20. And then chapter 4, verse 13-17, to 17, instead of boasting and bragging about your plans to get wealthy and forgetting God's sovereignty... Instead of that, we should take every joy and sorrow to God, verses 13 to 18. And instead of chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, hoarding and abusing your wealth and using the power to condemn righteous men, we should be patient, chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, and realize that the Lord, the judge, is coming. Not ignore him, as the rich do, but be patient and wait for him, as he will surely come. So there are bookends here. The last section of the book is then in 5, 7 to 20, giving, as I just outlined for you, certain antidotes to the way of, of, hum, of pride. So the humble, instead of being proud and boastful, you know, we, we use the word to win others and take all of our cares to God and we're patient and so on. Now, that's one structure of the last part of the book. There's another structure of the last part of the book. The other structure is a, a description of the life of prayer. And the, the person, the believer, the humble believer, appropriately, instead of grasping for oneself, takes their needs and their concerns to God. So here goes, chapter 5, verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. You see the structural similarity? Is anyone happy? See that? Is anyone thing repeated? Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Verse 14. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. This little, this little if anyone actually appears not just those three times, but a fourth time. The structure then is this. Is there anybody among you who is going through these situations in life? Of course, the answer is yes. In fact, we could say, of course, he's covered, he just covered everybody. Because in verse 13, he said, is anyone in trouble? And then he asked if anyone was happy. I mean, I guess you could say we're all either in trouble or happy. Maybe we're both. You know, if what he's saying is, are you in trouble? Is your life difficult? Here's how to handle that. Is your life happy? Here's how to handle that. So he's going to tell us to take every mood every life situation to God, to hallow every pleasure, to sanctify every pain. That is going to be 
is theme here. He does it through some statements. Is anyone, again, suffering hardship? Let him pray. If anyone is in good spirits, let him praise. If anyone is sick, let him call the elders. And if someone calls the elders, then let them pray. Another way of looking at it is, instead of all these is anyone's, is to look at four groups at prayer. There's the individual at prayer for their joys or their sorrows. There is the elder or the elders at prayer over sickness. And there's the person or there are friends at prayer over sins committed, verse 16. And finally, there is the prophet at prayer, Elijah, who is an example of the efficacy of prayer in the time of need. So, here's the basic advice, basic counsel. If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, praise. That's generic. That'll cover just about everything. But having done that, he wants to focus a little bit more on trials one more time. We've really left behind by now, then, the, or mostly left behind, the theme of the signs or marks of true faith. We're now back to the early part of the book. We might call it, a, I used the word inclusio with you before, maybe a giant inclusio. The book started with trials, right? And now it's going to end with trials, the trial of sickness. So what's he going to say about the trial of sickness? Let's just read through it a little bit. He says, If you're sick, you should call, if anyone is sick, call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. What do you think of that? What if I told you that the language there will make the sick person well was actually will save him? It is. And the Lord will raise him up. What does that raise him up? The Lord will raise him up. What does that sound like? That's kind of like resurrection language, doesn't it? The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now there are a couple questions people have about this passage. Now, one is, should we expect things like this to still happen today? Should we still do this sort of thing today? Or is this something from the age of the apostles, the age of miracles? What do you think? Look at the passage. What are the indications? Is this for today? Does this seem to be for today? What's the indication that this is for today? Who is he, who is he talking about praying? Is he talking about apostles? Prophets, perhaps? Who is he talking about? He's talking about elders. Do we still have elders around? Yeah. Do we still have people who are sick around? Yes. Do people who are sick still need to call for their spiritual leaders to help them? Is it still appropriate when you're sick to examine yourself to see if there be any sin in you? These are all things that seem to be appropriate. Is prayer for healing appropriate? Certainly the answer is yes. So this is not something from uh, simply antiquity. It's something that's ancient that still holds today because he's talking about elders and friends gathering at prayer. Then there's a bunch of other questions. We could almost work through the passage by answering the questions. How sick does one have to be? Does any sickness count? How does it work? Do we have to use oil? Do we have to use oil? Do we have to use olive oil? Does it have to come from the promised land? Does it have to come from Israel? Could it be canola oil? Corn oil from Canada? 
What is the significance of oil anyway? Why? Why oil? And how does this fit with other healings, and for that matter, other people not being healed in the New Testament? Epaphroditus, you know, almost died. Paul didn't heal Epaphroditus, he got better. Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, implying that Paul did not want to or see that it was the right thing to use his miraculous powers on healing Timothy. How does that work? Who gets healed and who doesn't? Those are all questions we have. Uh, The main idea is pretty clear, though. If you're suffering any illness or trouble of any kind, you should pray. Take that to God. A scene. The scene is not too difficult to understand. If you're sick, you call the elders. Why them? It doesn't say call those who have the gift of healing. Notice. Just call the elders. Why the elders? Because they're righteous. That's the number one qualification for being an elder. Not, incidentally, the number one qualification is not having a nice corner office and uh, being a person of rank and influence. Number one requirement is righteousness and the prayers of a righteous man are effective prayers for healing not for a miracle and the use of oil means that we use spiritual means because oil is evocative of the Holy Spirit in the Bible but also medicinal means because because oil was used therapeutically in biblical times as well the illness appears to be major. It says, if any of you is sick, but it also adds in the next use of the word sick, again, this is from the Greek, the first use is an ordinary garden variety word for sick or literally weak, weakened by illness. The next word is worn out. If anyone is worn out. So it doesn't mean if you have a sniffle or a cold. It means you're in bad shape. It may, incidentally, also cover what we call depression today. Somebody who's spiritually worn out, weakened in their spirit. I don't think there's any reason to exclude taking these things to God. But it should be something major. There's also the idea that they have to call the elders to them. And the elders lay their hands over them. Maybe the person is envisioned as being bedridden, unable to go to the elders. That's not really quite clear. It is clear that the sick person takes the initiative. If anyone is sick, let him call the elders. That is to say, you don't just pop in on people saying, Hi, we're here to heal you. There should be a desire for this in them. Uh, What shall we say about about the expectation here? There's there's an expectation here that there's a spiritual dimension to the illness. You're supposed to examine yourself, see if you sinned in any way confess your sins is is are we supposed to assume then that everybody who gets sick has committed a sin no no there may not be a sin involved here but you should examine to see if there is a sin the disciples were wrong when they said about the man who was born blind who sinned this man or his parents the trouble is today we sometimes de-spiritualize illness if we could say the disciples wanted to over-spiritualize and say every illness was due to a sin today we want to say it's all microbes it's all bacteria it's all viruses 
The Bible does connect sin and illness sometimes. The Bible does say, for example, in Deuteronomy 28, that if the people are false to the covenant, they'll receive diseases. There are actually have quite, a, quite a group of them here. Well, for example, when Jesus heals a paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven, which implies that sin is connected to his illness. So what we should do is examine ourselves and see if there might be some sin involved in this. And then, and then call the elders and pray in faith. Notice what it says, the prayer of faith, verse 15, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. That is to say, it won't work as magic. If you just say, hey, let's all call the elders and we'll all get, he'll get better. You can't do it in a callous or calculating or skeptical way. I have, I'll tell you about one of them in a minute, but I've been in on this about 20 times. Okay? I, I didn't used to believe in it. I used to believe it was in the past, and I studied it. I said, no, I think it's for the present. And, and you know, a couple dozen times I've been in services where elders came and prayed over people. And I want to tell you that for a Western person with, uh, shall we say, overly developed critical faculties, which, you know, and that's what professors are, you know, they get a little bit too rational sometimes. It's very, very easy to stand there and think, this isn't going to work. You know, what, what, you know, all I've done is raise this poor person's hopes. Why did I do that? You know, it's very easy to be skeptical. But this is clear. There can't be pure skepticism and nothing but skepticism. If you, out of obedience, say, I want to do this, and you bring the elders together yourself, or maybe you're an elder, you don't have to have perfect faith. It's not like the prayer of faith, the quality of your faith will make the person well. That's not the issue. The issue is that you can't all be gathered as a bunch of unbelievers trying to get something from God. If your faith is imperfect but real, that's good enough. Now, one reason why I tell you that is because there is no such thing as perfect faith. Another reason is because... I am a skeptic. But I've laid my hands on people, and they've gotten better. Not just me, but a bunch of us, on a number of occasions. I know it wasn't the quality of my faith or the faith of the other people there, because I talked to them, too, and they said, yeah, I was doubting, too, man. <laughs> but, I, you know, it was in the Bible, so I think we better do it, I guess, you know. There was that, you know, kind of like, I believe, help me in my unbelief, as the Father says. So the prayer of faith, the prayer of faith, the Lord will raise them up. Every last person, well, yeah, every last person on the last day, every last person will be raised up. The Lord will raise everyone up. He may choose to raise some up now, strikingly, surprisingly. Others, much later. In other words, for some, this raising up and this saving, this healing, may only be in the resurrection. Now, if some of you wonder about this, if it seems like a little bit too much, you you get a little encouragement from him in verse 17 and 18. He says, Elijah. You know, look at Elijah. Look what happened when he prayed. Now, we may say, Elijah? That doesn't encourage me at all. Look at Elijah. What a great prophet he was. He, you know, he performed miracles. You're going to say, Elijah's success in prayer is an encouragement? It discourages me, but wait. Look at the way he describes Elijah. He doesn't call Elijah a prophet or a great prophet. What he says is, his introduction of Elijah is, Elijah was a man just like us. Another translation would be, Elijah had the same passions as we do. That is to say, the same variations and fluctuations. 
And boy, is that the truth of Elijah. One minute he's, you know, standing down 450 Baal prophets and calling fire down from heaven. And the next day he's saying, oh man, this Jezebel scares me half to death. I've got to get out of here. And he goes and runs. And he's hiding in, and he's saying, Lord, just kill me. I can't stand anymore. I'm all by myself. That's us. Heroic one minute, quivering the next. Elijah was a man just like us. Uh, but he prayed earnestly. He's also a man of great faith. He prayed it wouldn't rain. And you know, it didn't. And three and a half years later, he prayed again. This time he prayed that it would rain. And you know what? It rained. Elijah was a man with the same passions as we are. He's more like us than he is unlike us. He had power, great faith, great position, but he also had great weakness. And that's the way it is with us. I want to tell you that, uh, you know, the way through these trials really is by faith. You know, this is bookends. And... And it is faith in the trial that takes us to, to completion and maturity. And it's so tempting. Uh, this thing that James is after is so needed by us to intellectualize the faith. I'll tell you a story against myself. It has to do with my kids again. After I had laid my hands with a group of other elders, you know, kind of got it, you know, gave it a push in my church, which didn't do such things. Um, and we're Presbyterians after all. You know, is their motto. We don't want any miracles around here. We're Presbyterians. <clears throat> so, you know, gently urging for months in my church as a number of years ago. And I'm exaggerating. It's a great church. But they had never done it. Gently urging. You know, let's do this. This is biblical. We have some people who are really sick in our church. And one of them, which I tell about in another course, one of them was spectacularly healed. I mean, thunderbolts from heaven. You know, disease is disappearing. Doctors saying, I don't know what happened. I mean, the whole thing. And uh, another couple people were, were healed very quietly and had enormous spiritual blessing. And other people, nothing happened. I'll tell you very candidly. Uh, there, was, there was one spectacular healing, two quiet healings, three, maybe two, sort of, you know, we could see that anything happened that was any benefit to anybody. Uh, while this was going on, I'm laying my hands on other people. Sort of there had been kind of a backlog of people waiting for this in this church. You know, it wasn't a big church, but everybody had been sick for a while. Says, "Yeah, you know, let me get in on this." So we're laying our hands on people, and and it's been a real blessing to some people in the church. My youngest daughter, who is uh, who's now nine, had really severe allergies. She still has quite a few, but had really bad allergies as a little child, and she had. She had a, a, a severe rash from head to toe. Now you say a rash. You know, how bad can a rash be? I mean, it was bad. Uh, it was so bad that in, all summer long we had to literally keep her covered from head to toe because the second you would take off her clothes to give her a bath or let her play, she would just tear at her skin, which itched so much. She would tear at her skin so much that she had little hundreds. You know how kids have real sharp fingernails? She had hundreds and hundreds of tiny cuts all over her body from just, just tearing at her skin. And, and, you know, she'd just scream and cry out and we'd give her a bath, just wailing. And we'd change her clothes. The itching of her skin would just cause her to shriek just nonstop. And we prayed over her and so on. But the truth was, although I'd done it for others, I found it hard to call the elders. What I'd done for others, I found it hard to do in my own family. And I think one reason was 
that I could tolerate the disappointment of other people, but to have, you know, my own child not be healed. And I'm thinking, well, you know, besides my wife and I can do it. But, you know, we, we laid hands after hesitating for a while. We laid hands on her and prayed over her. And in fact, once I decided to do it, I decided to go the whole way. And I gathered two groups of elders. One was on Wednesday and the other was on Thursday. It was all arranged. You know, I had one group of the school where I was teaching and I, we, they gathered and then and the elders of the church. And uh, I was, you know, I was just filled with doubt and wondering and wondering why I didn't have any more enthusiasm myself for it. And it really felt low. Nothing, nothing had seemed to happen at all. But about, oh, I don't know, four hours later, around maybe right before supper time, I heard crying coming from upstairs in our house. Very soft crying. And it, it caught my attention because, you know, not, you know, wailing or, or anybody really upset, but a very odd, soft weeping. And I walked up the stairs to see what it might be. And it was my wife who was crying as she was bathing our child, 11 months old, crying. And her word was simply this, she's playing in her bathtub. For the first time in her life, she's playing in her bathtub. And, and there she was. I mean, just that day, she'd always screamed. And that day, she sat in her bathtub and was just kind of patting the water, the way babies are supposed to do. But she hadn't been able. And, you know, it, it just... it took I don't know why it took us so long but it, it's it's so easy sometimes again this is what James is after to say you know this faith and this doctrine is for you and then intellectualize it ourselves and not claim it for ourselves that's that's what the Lord wants us to do whether you know there's the healing or not we take every sorrow and every pleasure to God and the result of it all is that the whole community shall be healed you see this last segment reminds us that all this living out of the faith is not something that happens in isolation as individuals but rather my brothers he concludes if any of you should wander it should be all of us who are interested in bringing it, bringing him back to the faith whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins that's what the Christian community should do individually living out our, our faith in the face of trials, but also being there to reclaim the brother when they're not able to turn back themselves. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.